the blessed home of the soul. We just sang about that and certainly a ring of excitement, a ring of wonderful anticipation surrounds our thoughts as we consider that eternal home of the soul. It is the case tonight that as you perhaps see on the wall to my left, we'll for the next few moments give consideration to a very interesting apostle. Certainly one that conjures a number of considerations and thoughts. And we certainly will not be able to exhaust all of them in the time that we have allotted. But perhaps in them we can learn some interesting lessons that can be of great benefit to you and me as well. These introductory thoughts, I suppose, may be a bit lengthier than usual. But nonetheless, thoughts that I believe will be at least interesting in that they will prompt us along some considerations that might be a bit new. The life of Judas Iscariot. As you've already perhaps considered as we've given thought to this, the New Testament presents in no uncertain terms some very clear ideas about Judas. The choices that he made, the particular avenues along which he chose to walk, but as you'll notice on that slide before you, Judas is a very intriguing character. Over the centuries, from that first century until now, so many things have been written, so many documents and articles and books have been tabulated that describe some aspect, some feature of the life of Judas. You and I, again, are well familiar with the biblical approach to this man, again, to the choices that he made. However, if you'll notice on that particular slide... There are some other supposed books, not in our New Testament, of course, but books that describe Judas very differently. To mention one of them, there is the so-called Gospel of Judas. A number of years ago, as archaeologists were involved in digging in that part of the world, they found a document. It, in fact, labels itself the Gospel of Judas. Apparently, there was someone living around the 3rd or 4th century. Again, several hundred years after the actual Judas Iscariot died, but several hundred years later who wrote a particular document and called it a gospel account. It is a spurious account, but isn't it interesting? In that document, Judas is hailed as a hero. In fact, of all the 12 apostles, he and he alone was the one who actually carried out the bidding of Jesus. Not many years ago, you probably remember there was a large international story touching this gospel according to Judas. In fact, there are many scholars in our world who really lift it up highly, respect it very thoroughly, and paint it as a more believable picture than the book you hold in your lap. It's not our business tonight to defend Judas. Our business is to ask, what does the inspired books of the Bible say about him? We don't really care what a 4th century book may have written because that book wasn't inspired. And other books written since then are not inspired. You and I look to this book as the Word of God. For isn't it still true that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. With those kind of thoughts in mind, why don't we then give some consideration from the Word of God to this gentleman named Judas? As we do that, let's turn the slide and look at the first portion of our lesson tonight. We'll do so under the heading of a positive beginning. As you reflect upon the selection of Judas as an apostle, 
you perhaps are well aware that the New Testament does provide us some information about our blessed Savior's selection of those twelve. Twelve amongst all the disciples, those twelve were especially close to Him. You'll notice at the top of this slide in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and following, we read very carefully that our Savior, on the night prior to His selection of those apostles, He prayed all night long. Not just for a moment or two. The text informs us the Lord was earnest in prayer for a long period of time. And then when the morning came, it very clearly identifies that He then selected out of all His disciples those twelve to be the apostles. And then, one by one, their names are listed. I would ask you to notice as you give thought to that verse number 16... One of the ones selected was this gentleman named Judas Iscariot. Following that on the slide, I've asked you to consider these thoughts. We do know his father's name. Later we learn in John 6 verse 71 that Judas Iscariot was the son of Simon. His daddy was Simon Iscariot. Maybe that alone is some indication, albeit certainly not an entirely guaranteed one. But that word is carrying. Literally means of Kirioth. Perhaps that's an indication of the hometown of, of Judas. In other words, it may well be that this Judas hailed from this village, which again was called Kirioth. And as you'll notice on the slide, it was in one of the southernmost parts of Judah. You'll notice also in terms of this man Judas is carrying. On that same slide, I would invite you to notice, upon his selection of those apostles, we notice that sometime shortly thereafter, Jesus commissioned them and sent them on a very powerful set of commissions and journeys. I would invite you to notice Matthew chapter 10. As you begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 10, a list of the apostles is given, and that list includes Judas Iscariot. And then immediately thereafter, the Lord commissioned them and said, Go and preach unto the lost tribes of the house of Israel. Verse number 6. He also gave them power over unclean spirits. He gave them power to proclaim powerfully the message of truth. And what's more, they had power to heal the sick. You might notice, given that Judas was listed in that number... We now can conclude Judas had the power to heal the sick. At that point, Judas had the power to cast out unclean spirits. Judas had the power just like the other 11 apostles did. The Lord gave all of them that power and He sent them out. But He, in fact, admonished them to always be wise. Notice as He made that statement in verse 16. He encouraged them to be harmless as doves. And, of course, to be appropriately wise. Surely, in light of all those things, doesn't it give us at this point a bit of a new impression of Judas? We often simply think of this one who is a betrayer, one who is a traitor. And yet, at this point in his life, Judas had the power of goodness within him in the sense that God had looked upon him and shared with him the opportunity to help others see the truth to help others appreciate the error of maybe their own way and make a turn to the God of heaven. Maybe a lesson in that for us comes at the bottom of that slide. What about a positive beginning? Isn't it rather exciting to contemplate a positive beginning? 
perhaps when we begin an endeavor, when it starts with positiveness, when it starts with a sense of moving in the right direction, it dwells within us with a sense of great encouragement. It wants us to, in fact, prompt us to even do more effort and more labor and more work toward that accomplishment. Here, Judas had a great beginning. As I stand before this audience tonight, many of us have enjoyed such a positive beginning in our life. However, without too quickly coming to the rest of the story, might we pause to say just a positive beginning is not enough. One may become a Christian, but what about the way that one proceeds afterward in regard to the Christian race? The day of one's baptism, as great a day as that is, as incredible and powerful a day as that may well be, notice one must endure to the end. Didn't Jesus also say there in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. In other words, those to whom the apostles were told to preach, those that endure to the end, those that maintain fidelity, those that proceed onward with faithfulness throughout all the difficulties, no matter how great they may be, they are the ones that will be saved. That message is so very pertinent still, isn't it? Many times for us, it's rather noteworthy to consider what baptism does not do. You and I are so often of those who reflect upon what baptism does do. It's at that time when, of course, God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgives us of sin. And it's that moment when He adds us to the church. Those are great things. But you'll notice our name is put in the Lamb's book of life at that moment. But there is an eraser on Jesus' pencil. Our name can be taken out of that book of life, according to Revelation 3, verses 1 to 5. You see, a positive beginning, as great as that is, has to be followed with continued faithfulness thereafter. I would invite you to notice these additional verses. In Philippians 3, verse 14, you may notice that that comes right after that very memorable statement of verse 13 of that same chapter. Consider Paul for just a moment. Here was one who himself had been a persecutor of the church. Didn't Paul himself frankly say, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, you see, was looking forward with intent for faithfulness and dutifulness with regard to the things of heaven. What about you and me tonight? May we never ever merely rest on the successes of the past. Whatever those successes may have been, and praise be unto God for them, may we realize we must look forward and go on into perfection, to borrow the wording of Hebrews 6 verse 1, to launch out into the deep, Luke 5 verses 1 to 4. In all of those ways, you and I realize a positive beginning reminds us of Judas. He had that. But the rest of the story isn't nearly as positive. Let's turn the slide and come to the next study or the next phase of the life of this gentleman named Judas. You'll notice there's a much darker side to all of this. We aren't given all the details I'm sure that we would wish relative to Judas, his ongoing way of life, but those that are given to us are very telling and they are also very intriguing. In fact, consider this with me. When our Savior selected those apostles... 
remember, he prayed all night, and of that group, Judas's carry, it was one of them. But you and I know that Jesus, he knew very well what the future held. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that there was going to be a great deal of agony and pain. In fact, he himself, as the Garden of Gethsemane approached, did he not pray, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, as thou wilt. Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42. Consider our Savior. As he selected those, he knew Judas was in the number, and he knew full well what Judas, Judas was going to do in the times that were ahead of him. He knew well the decisions that Judas was going to make. He knew very well that fateful set of choices that Judas would make. The text puts it like this in John 6, verse 70. Judas was a devil. That's the wording of the Word of God. The text on that occasion, you may remember that some of the disciples, especially after the Lord had preached a very powerful and demanding sermon, some of them turned and walked no more with Him. Jesus, turning to the group that was still there, said, Will you also go away? Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And in the verses that follow, we now have this reflection, this description, Judas was a devil. That word devil that's employed there in description of him is the very same word that's used in other places as a descriptive, of course, for the behavior of Satan himself. Matthew 25, 41. Now that's not to say that Judas was the literal devil. It's to say that his choices were in line with those of Satan. His outlook was more in line with the things of Satan than they were the things of God. That's a tragedy. Here one who had such a sound beginning, who had the opportunity for such noteworthy characteristic behavior, and yet he chose to allow the dark side to be triumphant. He chose to allow that to be victorious instead of the good. As we develop that saga more thoroughly, we come to John chapter 12. At this point, the crucifixion of our Savior was but a mere few days away. In fact, as you come to that chapter with me, you'll notice we were six days ahead of the Passover. Six days before our Savior was going to be crucified. And Jesus had come to the house of Mary and Martha, that town of Bethany wherein Lazarus and his sisters dwelled. This was that same Lazarus, by the way, who in the previous chapter Jesus had raised back from the dead. And there had been a great deal of discussion. There was a buzz through the entire community. There's the one that had died and now he's alive again. You know who did that? Jesus did it. So powerful was the arrangement of the things that had happened that even those who were the religious leaders had made determination, they needed to eliminate Lazarus. This very chapter will describe it was their intent to kill him. He was too great a testimony that this man Jesus was real. It is in that very context we find the following. There was a woman. She brought a box of ointment and poured it on the master's feet and began to take her hair and to wipe that ointment from the feet of Jesus. As she did that, one by one we can imagine that perhaps the other apostles were standing there in, in a gas looking at this. Judas spoke something. 
I would ask you to turn to that chapter. Let's notice with care what it was that took place and how it was that Judas reacted. Beginning in verse number 3, the text says, Then then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. At that point, we notice that Mary had selected to do this. She wasn't forced to do it. She, of her own choice and volition, took this pound of spikenard of ointment, break it open, and poured it on Jesus' feet. The next verse says, Then saith one of his disciples, and we aren't left to wonder which one it was. It said it was his Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. This is the same gentleman that, again, but a few days into the future from this reading, will ultimately betray Jesus. What did Judas say? The King James Version reads it like this. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. On the slide, I've asked you to think about the English Standard Translation's presentation of that same particular text. In particular, you might notice, Judas raised an objection. This ointment that this woman has wasted, he would say, it could have been spent for the benefit of the poor. It could have been directed with greatness and with great benefit to someone needy. Note the next verse, please. In the English Standard Translation, again it reads, He said this not because he cared for the poor. The inspired writer wanted to point out to us, Judas wasn't motivated by a great sense of compassion and care for the poor. Rather, here was the idea, but because he was a thief. The inspired writer, not this spurious gospel of Judas, the inspired writer said that Judas was a thief. And it even explained, or at least elaborated, in making this comment. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You and I can well imagine that Jesus and those twelve apostles, as thirteen individuals, as they traveled about doing good, they had a money bag. They had a local treasury for the benefit of themselves. Judas had the charge of it. He was the one that oversaw it, apparently. He was in charge of what was inserted into it and also what was deducted out of it. The text is very clear. Judas helped himself to what was in it. Judas embezzled monies. He embezzled funding out of the money bag, oversaw for the benefit of our Master. Again, we aren't considering at this moment the gospel according to Judas. John, the beloved apostle of love. John, that one who was an eyewitness of our master, he declared Judas as a thief and even said that he embezzled funds. Notice by this time, this very Judas, who had such a great beginning, he's now stooped to the point. He's a thief. What happened? What changed in his life? May we say, some amount of time, of course, has elapsed from the time Jesus selected him as an apostle until now. Apparently about three years. What happens in your life and mine over a three-year period? Think about the changes that can occur. Think about the directions in life, the developments that can take place, the new approaches and perspectives that can sometimes come to pass. 
this very one who had begun with such opportunity and potential and possibility now is a thief. We don't know how long he'd been a thief. Maybe for some amount of time. We do know John 12 verse number 6 says it like this. May we pause for another lesson. This one who had begun with again such possibility. Notice there was not an ongoing vigilance for goodness. May you and I then not simply be content to rest with a momentary sense of positive direction, but for our service to the Lord, it's an ongoing consistency. Jesus went about doing good, Acts chapter 10, verses 36 to 38. His apostles were those two whom He charged to go about and to again do those blessed events which He had commanded. Recall with me that scene of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What is it that Jesus commissioned of those apostles? They, of course, were to go about teaching what He had given them to teach, leading to the baptism of many and then continuing to teach even those that had been baptized. We today, as the church of our Lord, the church of Jesus Christ, we still, of course, strive to do that very thing. Judas wasn't vigilant, was he? He didn't remain faithful. In fact, these verses at the bottom, Matthew 6, 24, puts the challenge and the charge before all of us like this. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That word mammon is an Aramaic term and has reference to money and possessions and physical things. And how appropriately that speaks to Judas. Judas apparently loved money. He was a thief. He, of course, wagered all of his, the nature of his eternal soul in light of acquiring it. Jesus said, you can't serve me and money at the same time. You can't serve God and mammon simultaneously. And it's still true, you and I must make, of course, a similar choice. The devil would wish us to give all that is the greatness of our being in pursuit of physical things, what we can see here on this earth. Let heaven at most just be a passing fancy for some future thought. The devil has won if we start thinking that way. He has captured you and me. He has gotten the upper hand on you and me. We can't serve the two at the same time. Notice furthermore in 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and following, Paul several decades later would say it like this. He said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There are many thoughts in that particular passage. Perhaps we might notice this. It's not money by itself, but it's the love of it. And you'll notice Paul even identified it's those who've coveted after it. For them, money has become so important, so significant, that they are willing, of course, to set aside truth or even other things in the pursuit of it, in the acquiring of it. Paul was quick to say, wasn't he, that those who with that standpoint and that approach, they've erred from the faith. That couldn't be much plainer, could it? 
I wonder on that day of judgment, how many may stand before the great presence of the God of heaven? Members of the church of Christ they were, but they loved money too much. They may find themselves like that gentleman in Luke 12, verses 15 and following. He was blessed mightily without question. In fact, so much so, his idea was, I'll pull down my barns and build bigger ones so that I can store up things for myself. And this is what I'll say to my soul. Soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Thou hast many goods laid up for many years. God had the final say, as He always does. This thou fool this night, thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Doesn't that remind us? Here was a man who had a great opportunity, and yet he squandered it in selfish pursuit of mammon. May you and I be wiser than that. Learning, among other things, from Judas, a great start needs to be followed with consistency and faithfulness. That certainly wasn't in Judas's behalf. One last thought in 1 John 2.15. We read this reminder from the same person that wrote the book of John. That apostle of love, that same one said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see, Judas, in many ways, at least by principle, teaches us all of these things and then some. Why don't we come to one of the last features of the lesson? Not only this dark side. We noticed a positive beginning. We saw a darker midst in the middle. What about the ending? How did Judas's life reach its conclusion? His life in the flesh, I suppose I should say. You'll notice as we come to the top of that slide, more than one time in these gospel accounts, the statement is made that Satan entered into Judas. We shouldn't read into that, that Satan against Judas's will forced Judas to do what he did. Judas had the choice. In fact, God has always allowed the human family, every one of us, to make our choices. Judas could have acted differently, but he chose to betray Jesus. He chose to go and make arrangements for the betrayal. He chose to wager in regard to the 30 pieces of silver. That was the arrangement Judas made. It is true that God knew beforehand what Judas was going to do. God knows everything you and I are going to do as well. He knows tomorrow the choices you're going to make. He knows tomorrow the words I'm going to speak. He knows even tomorrow what kind of conditions and circumstances you and I will find ourselves in. It's true, He already knows whether we'll be faithful or not. And He knew Judas wouldn't be. But that didn't change the fact. That was merely a writing of history before it happened. Notice what all that means. On this slide, at the Passover... That very night that Judas betrayed him, Jesus, while Judas was present, made the statement, and I've put it in quotations, it would be good for that man if he had not been born. For that one who has chosen to be the betrayer, the one who's chosen to act as a traitor, it'd be good if he'd never been born. But the fact is, he was born and he's made his choices. And you'll notice where that leads us. 
amongst that group. Even Judas asked, Lord, is it I? One by one they asked after Jesus had identified the fact one of them would be his betrayer. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be Judas that night? He knew there was already in his mind the fact of guilt, and yet he had the nerve, the gall to ask, Lord, is it I? Perhaps to save face, to not give away to those that were his fellow apostles what he had done. Jesus, Jesus knew very well it was him. Jesus knew very well what choices he had made. Look at what comes next. Later that night, of course, after Judas left, Jesus sang a song with those remaining apostles that were there with him, and then they proceeded to go out to the Mount of Olives, and there was a garden known as Gethsemane in that place. Later that night, after Jesus had prayed so earnestly, after he had prayed with such deep emotion and feeling, Judas came with a band of soldiers. Judah, Judas placed a kiss on our master's face. They proceeded to arrest Jesus. Judas had betrayed him all right. Thirty pieces of silver it was to have been. In fact, centuries earlier, Zechariah had prophesied that's what it would be. Again, history written before its time. You may notice one final set of thoughts. Judas at this point, many have wondered, what was Judas thinking? Some have wondered, was it the case that Judas knew about the power of Jesus and he knew that in fact Jesus had the power to release himself? But of course that wasn't the plan of God. That wasn't the will of heaven. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried. He allowed himself to be scourged. Have you ever thought about what Judas must have been thinking? As all of this took place, maybe he was under the impression, as powerful as Jesus is, he'll simply miraculously free himself, but he never did. That brings us to this passage in Matthew 27 that Joe read earlier tonight. Notice again how it reads. Beginning in verse 1, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned. Notice the language. There's an adverb then. It would seemingly suggest that Judas held out this hope. This man, Jesus, I've seen him work miracles. I've seen him raise the dead. I've seen him bequeath to me and my fellow apostles the power to cleanse those that are lepers. Maybe Judas felt, well, he'll never allow himself to be killed. He'll never allow himself to undergo this kind of finality. And yet as the trial dragged on, Judas maybe with a great interest was watching. Why doesn't he free himself? But he didn't. The text says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, maybe holding out hope that he would free himself, but he never did, then it says he repented himself. Judas had a degree of sorrow at that point for what he had done. He had a degree and a sense of greatness with respect to that which he himself had performed. But it does say, 
and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. That 30 pieces of silver didn't mean a lot to him then. Jesus, the great Son of God that he'd been with for over three years, he was now condemned to die. Judas didn't want the money anymore. The next verse says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, See, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Judas went out and committed suicide. He took his own life. As you play out the events of those last hours of his life, maybe he had the hopes, again, that Jesus would free himself, but he didn't. The Lord's calling was far higher than just for the benefit of anything on earth. He wanted people to go to heaven. He died that you and I might be saved. And when Judas' plan never came to fruition, apparently, he went and threw the money down, and he went and took his life. Some have wondered, when it says he repented himself, did Judas make things right with God? Based on the wording of Acts chapter 1, apparently the answer is no. Notice again, in that place, Acts chapter 1, he's called the son of perdition. He's still called the, re the rebellious one. Apparently, Judas didn't die saved. He died as a traitor. He died as the betrayer. He died as the one who, in fact, put the pieces in place to ultimately lead to our Savior's death on the cross. As we come to the bottom of that slide, what might we say about another set of lessons for us, even tonight? What a weighty thing sin is. I know this morning we looked at a lesson dealing with God's anger towards sin. But maybe it would be wise for us to consider. When one looks upon sin and allows oneself to engage in it, we really are never sure as to how that may turn out. Events may begin to move in a direction. Things may change in our way of thinking and ultimately we may be engulfed in what we never would have dreamed. My suspicion is, and I'm sure many of us would agree, that there are many sins that become very challenging and difficult, but they didn't start out that way. That man that's addicted to pornography, I'm sure it never began that way. It began with what he would have called just a fun moment or two in the front of, of a computer screen, but it has come into something to which he is absolutely addicted now. What a weighty set of consequences has happened. That man that flirts a little bit with one of the ladies at the office never dreams and six months later he'll commit adultery against his wife. What started out that may have appeared so innocent ended up so tragic. It ended up in such a harmful set of circumstances. You could paint that picture with respect to many other things. That youngster in high school that smokes the first cigarette never dreams that 30 years later he'll still be trying to quit. That youngster that takes the first drink in high school prompted by the peer pressure of others never dreamed the fact that it'll lead to the death of someone when he's or she's involved in a car wreck. You never dream about those consequences that come from it. Surely in light of those things, look at some of the weighty consequences of the sins of the Bible. Do you suppose in Numbers chapter 20 that when Moses struck that rock twice, do you suppose that would have kept him out of the promised land? But it did. 
Isn't that amazing? I'm sure he would never have dreamed that those kinds of events would have unfolded that day. But look at what the consequences of those sins were. In Deuteronomy 1.37, that same idea is presented. God was angry with me because of that which I did, prompted by the frustration of that moment. To that list, what about Leviticus 10 verses 1 and following? Do you suppose Nadab and Abihu would ever have thought, what difference does it make if I offer strange fire or not? God took their life instantly. Their sins had great consequences. May I suggest our choices today are exceedingly weighty. May we choose the proper direction, not making the kinds of mistakes even in principle that Judas did. Start good, continue faithful, and die in the Lord. In Revelation 14, 13, we'll close our lesson with that passage. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. It's a sweet, sweet thing to die in the Lord, isn't it? Many have been the occasions you and I have attended the funeral of someone who, as far as we could tell, was a faithful Christian. And it provides us with such hope and encouragement and consolation. But to those individuals who don't have that hope, they aren't leaving here for a better place at all. The rich man didn't in Luke 16. Doesn't it remind us then that our study of Judas tonight allows us to make these conclusions. A positive beginning, as great as it is, must be followed up with continued devotion and faithfulness. And that will lead to a positive ending, not a sorry one, not a regretful one, not such a very negative one. This very night, there may be someone in this audience and you realize that the gospel call of invitation is not merely from me or even from our elders. It's from Jesus Christ. Jesus, in a very real sense, is beckoning for you to come. He said, look at what I did at the cross. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wants you to come to Him, to rush to His side, and to live faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. Tonight, if we could assist you in becoming a Christian, that plan of salvation is believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Once you've begun that walk, live faithful till death. Don't let anything about money, possessions, things this world offers distract you, cause you to be unfocused, and to fall off the path of, of rightness toward God. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in any way, if there's someone that needs to be rededicated, why not do that tonight? Why not do it very differently and far better than Judas did? Why not come back to your loving Savior? If your sins have been of a public nature, repent of them and confess them and allow us to pray to God for you. If we could help you tonight, why don't you come while together we stand and sing?